Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Number one, every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people I've mentioned, verses from the Quran, Hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Now, most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But once we get into the longer form episodes, which I plan on uploading soon, these notes are going to be a very uh, useful resource and an aid. So be sure to check that out. Number two, I would really, really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday, I send out a short email that shares what I'm working on or reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to coexistresearch.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Inshallah, today we're going to uh, enter into the heart of the uh, subject. And we're going to talk about the first two examples or first two models of uh, prophetic coexistence. We'll talk about the Meccan period. And we'll talk about the period in which some of the companions went to uh, Ethiopia, Abyssinia. Uh, so this will be a little bit more condensed, hopefully, than, than the last time. And uh, before we conclude, I want to just touch on two uh, topics that sort of, I think, stem from this that are uh, causing a lot of uh, maybe commotion and debate today. Uh, we'll, I want to talk about slavery and I want to talk about apostasy slash disbelief sort of as the end. So in the first model or the first period or the first uh, example of uh, coexistence from the prophetic model, this is the model of Mecca. And in Mecca, there were uh, two halves to the story. There was the life of the prophet, peace be upon him, before he was commissioned. And there was a the life of the prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam after he was commissioned before the community, the majority of the community went to Medina. So what was life like before he was commissioned as a prophet? Uh, because the Prophet ﷺ was from Mecca, so he was born there, raised there, uh, and he lived the majority of his life in Mecca until he was commissioned with prophethood at the age 40, and then he lived in Mecca for an additional 13 years, so he left Mecca when he was 53 to live out the rest of his uh, life, the last 10 years of his life in Medina. So the majority of the Prophet's life, Wasallam, was in Mecca. And I think this is very important because as I said last time, uh, a lot of times when we think about the Sunnah of the Prophet, Wasallam, when we think about the prophetic example, for some reason our minds go to the last phase of his life, the last phase of the Medina life. But there was, the majority of his life was before that. And as a the matter of fact, the majority of his life was before he was in, even commissioned as a prophet, sallallahu But as I mentioned before, his entirety, his entirety of his life and his sayings and his being and his, everything about him is an example for us. So, what was life like in Mecca before the Prophet, sallallahu was commissioned? We have a very interesting text uh, from Jafar ibn Abi Talib, who was uh, uh, a relative of the Prophet ﷺ, who says later when we get to the Abyssinia period, this is part of his speech when he speaks with the Najashi of, of Ethiopia, he says that Mecca is a, is a place where the strong eat the weak. If you're weak financially, if you're weak racially, so there was prejudice against non-Arabs, 
there was prejudice against blacks. So if you were black or you were a slave or something like that, if you were without family or without lineage, the strong would eat the weak. So it was a place in which people didn't really have their rights protected, really didn't have their rights guaranteed. There was rampant usury. And usury, we need to understand, is not interest. It's another topic altogether, but for our purposes, I, just, I flag that it's important to understand that usury is not bank interest. Usury is where someone is crushed with the inability to pay uh, a loan that just keeps increasing exponentially, and you sort of, you're in a pit of, of, of debt. And people would use this loan shark type of usury transaction to, to crumble people and to crumble families. The moral paradigm was upside down. So morality was not necessarily based on the absolute or was not based on some clear code of ethics, but it was based on you know, a, a type of pagan polytheism. So, for example, one of the outcomes of this was that uh, people would prize male children over female children to the point that some of the families would even bury their male, uh, their female uh, children alive because they would bring shame to the family. If the firstborn wasn't uh, you know, uh, a male child, then they would literally bury that, that child alive. And the Qur'an talks about this. On the day of judgment, the, the, uh, the child, the girl child that was buried alive will testify and she will ask, well, by what right was I killed? So, and on the religious side, there was polytheism, um, where they worshipped, you know, 300 or 360 idols, you know, they're different narrations, but basically there was a god or an idol for every day of the year. And these idols were placed both inside the Kaaba and outside the Kaaba. So this is how Jafar ibn Abi Talib described the time of Mecca. Uh, he's, he, he was painting a true picture, but he was trying to allude to the fact that it was not a good thing. It was good for people who had you know, the upper hand, but for the majority of people it wasn't fair. Until the Prophet ﷺ came and he tried to upset that sort of status quo and tried to right some of these wrongs. So it was in this environment that the Prophet ﷺ grew up. It was in this environment of polytheism, of um, you know a type of patriarchy that was that would lead to you know death of innocence so on and so forth. This was the environment that he grew up in, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And in that, he coexisted. So in that model, he lived. So he continued to trade with people. He continued to uh, do things that would help society. And his wife Khadija. Uh, عنها, when he was first commissioned with the, with the message and you know it was, a, it was a heavy burden and he came to her she described she said but you're a good person and then she listed some of the things that he did in this time period so she said you're honest so he was known as al-sadiq al-amin even though people were not honest he was honest in his dealings in his transactions and she said you're charitable you give money to the poor you give money to those who need it. Because in that type of society, people that were needy had nothing. There were no you know, foundations or no charities or no hospitals or orphanages. You know, they were just sort of left to be you know, the wind. But the Prophet ﷺ was charitable. He would give 
from what he had from his own wealth, whether it was little or whether it was vast, to help. And she said that you honor your guests. So obviously these are guests that they could either be relatives or, or polytheists or you know, disbelievers, so on and so forth. He honored anybody who came to him. He honored his wife's family. He honored the youth. And that you help in the general good matters. And, and this is a reference to this treaty that the Prophet ﷺ was a part of. And all of the tribes in Mecca, again, all of this we're talking about before he was commissioned as a prophet. Uh, all of the tribes, they came together and they said, look, let's enter this pact and let's come, you know, basically we're going to pass a piece of legislation in our language that anybody who comes into Mecca, we are going to guarantee the rights. You know, really talking about financial rights. We're going to make sure that no one is wronged. We're going to make sure that anybody who come, comes to Mecca is dealt fairly, dealt equally and fairly. And this was called Hilf al-Fudul, uh, the Oath of Fudul. And the Prophet ﷺ acted on this. So it's not just something that he was like, okay, you know, sign me up. He actually acted on it. So one man came to Mecca and he, you know, he was going around the Kaaba and he was calling to all of like, you know, the people who, who looked like they were somebody important. And they're like, I was wrong. You know, who's going to fix my wrong? Until he came to the Prophet ﷺ, uh, who was sitting with some of his friends. And the Prophet ﷺ said, what's wrong? He said, this man uh, hurt me. Uh, with my camel sale. He prevented the sale of my camel. He inflated the prices on me. Now no one will buy the camels from me. So who is this person? Abu Jahl. Who is an uncle of the Prophet So he went, Sallallahu to Abu Jahl. Oh, first he went to the man. He fixed the problem. He sold the, the camels. And one of the sales, he gave all of the proceeds uh, to widows. And then he went to Abu Jahl. And he said, never do that again. And Abu Jahl was scared. Uh, and some of the narrations, they say, when the other, the other people of Quraysh asked him, why did you capitulate so easily to the Prophet Wasallam?" He said, well, didn't you see those two people on his right that had spears, an allusion to that the Prophet Wasallam had went and angels were manifest and, and he instilled fear in Abu Jahl. And he said, I had to, they were going to kill me. But you know, no one else saw that except him. But anyway, the point being that the Prophet Wasallam acted on this treaty. And he said, after he was commissioned, he said, I was called to a treaty in the time before Islam where I called to it again, I would engage in it. Meaning this, this treaty. So the Prophet ﷺ did things that would help the community, would help the society. And the most important thing is that even before his commissioning, there was still this honor of the, of the Kaaba. There was still this honor that the Kaaba was a sacred place. And he would continue to do, you know, tawaf. He would circumambulate around the Kaaba uh, in some sort of worship uh, and contemplation, not of the false gods, of course, because the Prophet ﷺ never did that. And at the same time, he would seclude himself. You know, once a year or so, he would withdraw himself to contemplate. But the point being is when you look at this period of time before he was commissioned, وسلم, he lived in that community as a member of that community. But he didn't necessarily let this community swallow him. So there were things that were wrong with that community. He didn't condone those things. He tried to fix them. But he also traded with them, interacted with them, kept his family ties. 
he didn't cut anyone else off because, you know, they were worshiping these uh, false idols that he didn't believe in, again, before he was commissioned. But he kept these type of um, relations, even to the point in which there was an uh, economic, um, let's say, you know, downtime in Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ went uh, uh, to his uncle because he had too many kids. And he said, I will take Ali from you who was just a boy at the time, and I will raise him in my own house, because at that time, there was not enough resources for somebody with a large family to uh, take care of all of these children. So many of these larger families that were, you know, dishing out kids to relatives, you know, maybe somebody doesn't have a child, you, you take two, you take one, and, you know, until we can, you know, get things back on the road, you know, on the right uh, foot again. So the Prophet ﷺ volunteered, and he took... Imam Ali salam, and this is one of the secrets that in Allah's, Allah's um, you know, guiding way that Imam Ali salam, grew up in the house of the Prophet salam. and Imam Ali salam, was the first from amongst the youth to become Muslim after Khadija, so Khadija became Muslim from the women she was the first to believe and then the first man to believe was Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and then the first amongst the youth was Imam Ali so the Prophet ﷺ took in his uncle's son, his, you know, his, his uh, cousin, because the family was in need. So this was the type of person that he was before he was commissioned as a Prophet uh, ﷺ, which uh, happened roughly when he was 40 years old. Obviously Mecca now remained the same, but the only difference is now that the Prophet ﷺ is sort of who uh, we normally think of him as, uh, as a messenger uh, from God, having a, a message, so on and so forth. So how did this change? Now, the presence of the Prophet ﷺ and his call, uh, obviously people, the Meccans, they didn't like that because he was upsetting the status quo, he was upsetting you know, norms and, th and things like that. And they tried... Uh, very much uh, with, with everything that they could do they tried to do away with him uh, and they tried to do away with the Muslims so he continued his family ties he continued uh, trading doing business and the people that followed him the early Muslim community same, same thing not everyone in their family was Muslim they continued to have uh, uh, polytheists or pagans or whatever in their in their families, they can they made they can maintain those family ties. They continue to do business with the community, so on uh, and so forth. But it was the Meccans that didn't tolerate the Muslims, so it was the other way around. So the lack of wanting to coexist or the lack of sort of getting along was was the other way, and this put an extreme amount of pressure on the Prophet Sallallahu and on the early Muslim community to the point that at one point in time, the Muslims were physically removed from you know, the precincts of Mecca and sort of pushed out, and they were, there was an embargo, uh, an economic embargo against the Muslims, imposed by the Meccans, so there was no trade, no food supplies, to the point that some of the companions, they said we had to eat the leaves from the trees. And say the Khadija, Lady Khadija radiallahu anha, she was 60 at the time, she had to leave her home, and you know, Khadija was, Lady Khadija was from a very well-known family. She was a very successful business lady, but because of their beliefs and the persecution of the Meccans, because of their beliefs, she left her home and she went with the community, 
and it was very tough, and this lasted for about three years. Uh, and it was during this time that some of the companions went to Abyssinia, and we'll get to that in a second. So things were very tough. Things became very tough very fast for the Muslims after the Prophet ﷺ was commissioned. He himself, he was the source of ridicule, uh, public humiliation, slander. Uh, people physically accosted him. He was praying uh, one time uh, in front of the Kaaba and somebody you know, dumped trash on him and, and his, his daughter, uh, Sayyidah Fatima ﷺ, removed the trash from him. At one time he was praying, وسلم, and somebody came and strangled him, you know, put something over his neck and strangled him while he was praying. So this is the kind of, imagine the kind of persecution, uh, you know, it's like almost like World War II, like Nazi persecution. It was something like that, that, something that's close in our minds that we can sort of compare it to. People were persecuted only for their beliefs. Uh, another one of the famous stories of persecution was Bilal. Uh, Bilal radiallahu anhu who was African, he was a black African and he was an early, early believer but he was a slave and his master at the time persecuted him not because he was abusing his slave but persecuting him because of his beliefs you know in a very humiliating way putting, you know, lying his body on the hot sand and putting you know, a boulder over him and Bilal said you know, the companions, they, when they narrate the story, they say we would walk by Bilal and we would hear him, he would say, Ahadun Ahad, Ahadun Ahad, Ahadun Ahad, which is one. And later they asked him, why would you say that? He said, this was the thing that pissed them off the most. Um, maybe he didn't use that language, but he said, this is the thing that, that, that made them upset the most. Anything I said was not as upsetting to them as me re re reiterating that. So, you know, even though he was in this persecuted state, he held on to his beliefs and he said that which upset them more. And at this, at this moment, uh, Abu Bakr, he came to the, the slave master and he said, you know, why, why are you doing this to the slave? You know, I'll trade you. I have a slave boy who's of your religion and I'll take Bilal. And they swapped and then Abu Bakr set Bilal free. So, and that's why I wanted to talk about slavery in a little bit because of this story. Um... One of the companions, one of the, the first uh, Umm Yasser, the first companion to be martyred in Islam, she was killed for refusing to curse the Prophet So this is the type of persecution that they wanted them to publicly renounce their faith. They wanted them to publicly curse the Prophet However, despite all of this, in those 13 years, the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslim community were patient. And when uh, Umm Yasir uh, was killed, the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Sabran ya ala Yasir fa O patience, the family of Yasir, your promise is paradise. And this became, and until this day, it's a, it's, a, it's a common used phrase of patience in the face of perseverance. So one of the things that we deduce or that we benefit from this time period is that the Muslims' attitude in the face of persecution, in the face of pressure, is patience. This is very important because this is, in many respects, counter to sort of the predominant culture. You know, in the dominant culture, whether it's not just a Western culture, I'm just saying in our modern culture, we don't have any patience. You know, if the elevator is not, op if the button of the elevator does not immediately open the door of the elevator, it's just too long. Forget waiting five seconds, it's just too long. To the point where people can complain, 
you know, or if the elevator stops at every floor, people, you know, everyone looks at the guy that pressed one like, you could have taken the steps, you know, for one and two, you could have taken the steps. But we have no patience. This is nothing compared to, you know, life tribulations. People, these people, their wealth was taken away from them. You know, they were tradesmen, they were businessmen. All of their wealth was taken away, their trade routes were taken away. They lost all of their money. Uh, they lost their honor, or not their honor, but they lost their status in society because of their beliefs. They were like pariahs in the Meccan society. But the Prophet ﷺ was patience, and he ordered patience. And this is a virtue that we really need to think about. Not, not because we're persecuted. We're not persecuted at all. Uh, the elevator not opening is not persecution. We're not persecuted. And just because you know, people say bad things about Muslims, you know, if Muslims stopped doing stupid things, then they would stop saying stu bad things about us. So that's another issue altogether. We're not persecuted. But we could use a lot more patience. And part of patience, we have to understand, is that there's a divine wisdom in patience, and there's a spiritual benefit in patience, that Allah Ta'ala has placed us in that difficulty. The, Allah Ta'ala could have made the Prophet ﷺ a prophet king, the way, he, the way he made Solomon or David. He could have made the Prophet ﷺ have all of this worldly, worldly power. And he was so disruptive that the Meccans actually offered him that. They said, we will make you a king. We will crown you a king if you just please stop saying what you're saying. And he said his famous statement, if they put the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand, I would not leave this mission, not leave this calling. So he didn't do this for some worldly you know, power because oftentimes to, to stand out and say what is right is to incur a lot of heat, is to incur a lot of blame. And even though people get so happy and excited about what you're saying, when, when, you know, when the you-know-what hits the fan, you're all left alone. Even the people that you thought were with you. So tribulation is something that's divine. Who put this tribulation in front of us? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what we call the destiny. When the Prophet ﷺ said, faith is to believe in destiny, it's good and it's bad, means that it's not always going to be peaches. It's not always going to be roses. There are going to be difficulties. Allah Ta'ala says, and we will try you by a loss of wealth, a loss of, of family. Uh, and we will diminish these things and give glad tidings to those who are patient. So tribulation for us equals patience. Now, it's not just Family tribulations or personal tribulations like, you know, my, my uncle's got cancer. Uh, we're just, you know, inshallah, we're going to be patient. It's not just that. But even everything around us. See, the, these were not uh, people that had cancer or, you know, somebody got lost in battle or something like that, didn't come home from the war. This is, the whole community is being persecuted. Meaning the system is against them on purpose because they are Muslim. And they were still patient. The Prophet ﷺ never once you know, called for arms to fight. Because he would say when they would ask him, shouldn't we do something? He said, I wasn't asked to do that. Allah didn't ask me to do that. Allah didn't ask me to, to form a revolution and, and, and take over Mecca. He told me to teach you how to pray. He told me to teach you how to fast. He told me to teach you how to be just uh, with the people that you work with, with your family, so on and so forth. Patience, patience, patience. And... We benefit from this, you know, most of what we see in the Muslim world today, this is part of the problem. It's a lack of patience. It's this idea that 
We're going to take matters into our own hands and we're going to bring the change now. And then look at the Muslim world three, four years later, five years later, it's an absolute disarray. Worse than it, could have, it was ever before. I mean, if before we thought it was bad, now it's, before it was, it's considered like paradise compared to what it is now. Because of this idea of patience, because of this idea that I have to do it myself now. But Allah Ta'ala, He says, uh, Allah gives dominion to whom He wants, but He takes away the dominion from whom He wants. He snatches it away from whom He wants. Because Allah is Malikul Mulk. Allah is the one that is the possessor of the dominions, not us. So when you find something, it doesn't mean that you sort of like just lie down and, you know, uh, woe is me. No, you try, they tried their best to do what they needed to do. But overall, the Prophet was patient. And he coexisted with them. And the most important, this is the most important thing. The second thing I want to say before we switch to the other mode is that the Prophet never cut his ties with the Kaaba even though it was surrounded and filled with 360 idols that lasted until the eighth year of the Hijrah. And this is very, very important because the Prophet was not a dim-witted person. He wasn't offended or uh, scared by the idols. He was offended from a spiritual point because they're false idols. And he was calling to monotheism. But he wasn't threatened. He didn't see them and you know, blow them up. He coexisted with them until the eighth year of the hijrah. That's two years before he died, وسلم, He faced the Kaaba and he prayed. And he did tawaf around the Kaaba, even though there were idols there. And this tells us a lot about the difference between correct religion and literalism. You know, if, the, if, if I say to you, you know, let's hit the road. All of you would be like, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to start our journey. But if I said, let's hit the road and somebody, one of us went out and started hitting the road with their shoe... There's something deficient, you all giggle, there's something deficient in that understanding. But many people, they understand Islam that way, in that literal, ridiculous way. Uh, so there is a, a right way to understand things and put things in context and understand our surroundings. And then there's a wrong way. And, and that's one of the points of why we're doing is there's a right Islam and there's a wrong Islam, full stop. 